Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. What every leader needs to do is recognize when the things that you're spending your time on aren't aligned with what's really important or what's the most value that you can get out of your time. I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of having a very full calendar, feeling very busy, feeling like there's so many things to do and the things that you don't move the needle in any way. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode features a session from ELC Annual 2022, our annual conference for engineering leaders, with Cal Henderson, co-founder and CTO at Slack, and Maria Kazanjiva, co-founder at Graft. They discuss strategies for how to be a force multiplier within your organization. Cal and Maria cover how to identify if you're currently a force multiplier and the opportunities to inspire productivity in others, how to identify lateral inflection points with your role in those early days, and how to align your people throughout periods of change. They'll also get into different tips for personal retrospectives to help you identify where you should invest your time. Let me introduce you to Cal and Maria. Cal Henderson is the co-founder and CTO of Slack. In 2019, he was named a Fortune 40 Under 40 honoree and recognized by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. Previously, Cal built and led the engineering teams at Flickr through its acquisition by Yahoo. Cal was also a pioneer in the use of web APIs and created the basis for OAuth and OEmbed, now used by YouTube, Twitter, and many others. And moderating the conversation is Maria Kazanjiva, co-founder and engineering leader at Graft, an early-stage AI startup. Prior to that, Maria worked at Netflix, where her team earned two Emmy Awards for technical achievement. Enjoy this conversation with Cal Henderson and Maria Kazanjiva. It is super cool to be here with Cal. Yeah, and good morning, everybody. Great to be here. This is everybody's chance to slack your friends, tell them what you're doing, and then turn off those notifications. I know I did it. The phones were put away. Slack can wait while we have I'm sure many of you are on call, so try to keep them going. (laughs) No pressure. Cal, I wanted to start with something that was mentioned in the introduction as well, which is before you started Slack, you were already in an engineering role, right? At Flickr. But if my last year and a half or any indication, doing something from scratch, going from a larger team at Flickr into Slack, there's a lot going on and a lot you have to do as an engineering leader. Tell us a little bit about the early days of Slack. I'm sure everybody would love to hear what that was like. Yeah, sure. I did Flickr in the past. And for those who are newer to the industry, that was a photo website in the before times. And it was, we sold it to Yahoo as an internet company from the before times as well. Actually, going even further back, Flickr started out as a game, a video game company. It failed to make video games, pivoted it into Flickr. And after that, we went and started another company to try and make video games again. And uh, we spent four years and all of our investors' money failing to make a sustainable business. And so we were, and that had grown over the course of four years to about 50 people, mostly a lot of kind of 
artists, animators, sound, level design, things like that. Small engineering team. And well, I was engineering leader of that, but we never had more than 15 engineers probably. It's a very small, very small team. And then when we pivoted to Slack, it was a, a full reset. We had to lay almost everybody off because we were moving from video games to something completely different. And we didn't need artists and animators and sound design. Although all of the sound effects in Slack, like the default knock brush sound, actually came from the game. And we're all, if you've used huddles and heard the hold music, that was composed by Danny, who was the composer for the game as well. So, we, you know, we, we kept people, we gave them work where we could uh, when we shut the game down. But really, it was a reset in the company. We went from 50 people down to eight, uh, like six engineers and a couple of other folks. And it was a complete reset, very small team. Now, I'm sure many of you here work on or have worked on very small teams. And it's just a completely different experience than being on a large team. I was the, I'm the co-founder, I'm the engineering leader, but also I like bought toilet paper for the office and dealt with the health insurance when people broke it or in SOMO, when people broke into our office, dealt with the police, bought people laptops, drove to Ikea and bought the desks and then screwed them together. And those fucking filing cabinets would take like half a day per person to put together. Then we realized this was the era of TaskRabbit when you could pay somebody to come do it for you. But it's obviously such a different job when you're at a small scale. You do a bit of everything and you don't think of yourself, or maybe you do identify that way, but you're not like an engineering leader in the sense of this is a leadership conference. That's not what you think about day in and day out. You think about how can the company get to the next week, to the next month? How can we build something? How can I hire enough people to build the things we want to build? How can we find customers? I spent a huge amount of my time in the first year visiting potential customers, talking to people who would love to try our product. And that's a can be a really difficult proposition. We just come out of a four-year failure and we're saying to people, we're going to make this, we don't know anything about enterprise software. We're going to make software that you should use for your team. It's how you should communicate. You should put all of our trust, all of your trust in us. We have just failed, but don't look over there. Look over here. This is, is going to be amazing. It's going to be super successful. And that first period, it seems funny now, given the success that we've had and that we've had, but it was really difficult to get anybody to try the product out. So part of being a leader there was just like hustling my friends to convince them that they should give us a go. One of the, I think our first alpha customer was Audio. That was like an American Spotify. And the reason that we got into that team is because my wife's ex-colleague's husband was an engineering manager there and we were pretty close and I convinced him over the course of a couple of months to give it a go. And it worked out for us getting those customers. But like that, those early days are just such a different kind of feel. You do very different things. And then you hit different inflection points in the growth of the company and the role changes completely. Thank you so much. Uh, I surely am glad that our startup is clearly remote because I do a lot of the same things except the toilet paper buying. Uh, so certainly I'm very appreciative, but I can relate to a lot of the uh, things that are not engineering leadership, but you really have to hustle in the early days and make everybody, everybody else successful. In some ways, a lot of times at a leadership conference, we talk about growth as this kind of linear thing that only goes in one direction, maybe in scope and responsibility. I think in early days of a company, there's also that growth laterally doing anything that it's doing, right? The hustling. Tell me a little bit more about these inflection points. I'm really curious, of course, as Slack was growing, how was your role changing? What were some of the difficulties there where you have to evolve with the company? Yeah. And I think... You know, it's interesting that you frame it as growth because I think often in those early stages as an organization grows, it's the opposite, that your scope gets kind of smaller and tighter and you do less and less things over time. And that can feel probably as an engineering leader, if you come from an engineering IC background, that could probably feel good because you get to spend more time on the thing that is your job and the thing that you are passionate about and trained to do and that you're there. But it's also can be super relieving as well. 
And so I think as that scope narrows, you can focus on the, on the thing that you do. That's a, that's one kind of inflection point. If you like, when you start to get professional as a company and you hire people to do the into individual roles. So I guess that's one is when you start to kind of get serious about it and you're no longer like working from your basement and eating cereal out of the box without getting dressed, but you're like having a real company. That's one. But I think the more important one under like an engineering leadership point of view is probably for us when we hit around 40 engineers, somewhere around that point was the point at which you transition from knowing what everybody is doing to having to think about having separate teams of people. And it's like, it's fuzzy. Maybe that happens at 20 people. Maybe it happens at 80 if you, if you really want to have 80 direct reports. And that can be a really, a really big difference. You start to think of yourself not just as like, sure, I'm the leader, but I'm an individual contributor and I'm driving everything. I know everything that's happening. I can prioritize all the things in my head. I can tell you roughly what we're going to get done this week and next week and maybe this month to one where you have to start carving up an organization. I think the last session that was in this room on reorgs was really interesting for a bunch of reasons. But if you're in a growing organization, reorganization is like not just essential, it's inevitable. You can't do anything but reorganize as you grow. And every way in which you organize sets of people is going to be bad in some way, unless you have a ton of completely separate products that have nothing in common at all, no overlap in technology, no overlap in, you know, go to market and customers, anything like that then there is going to be no natural way in which you can carve up an organization which is going to be super clean. So you have to choose what are the things that we're going to focus on and be good at? What are the things that we're going to be bad at and we're going to let fall through the gaps? And there, are all, there should be things that are more important. And that's how you design your organization in theory. I tell you, definitely made a lot of mistakes in how we designed the organization. If you're splitting up an engineering organization, an engineering team that's been one team into two teams, don't call them team A and team B because people don't like that. It seems obvious in retrospect. And we're like, we have two. Let's call them one and two. Nobody wants to be on team B. The other pieces, that, the naming side, we've had horrible challenges with naming things on time. Then we're like, all right, we're going to give obscure names to teams. So for a while, they were named after the giants from our video game, which were like kind of like the gods and they each had a weird name. That didn't really work either. At least it didn't have the A and B piece, but nobody remembered what the names were or what they meant. And then instead we name things after the features that they own or the areas of the code. And then that evolves and doesn't make sense anymore either. We've had so many variations on a product called Core, a product group called Core, which then just expands to be everything over time. Super difficult. Wait, where's my point? Where is I going with this? All right. But the big challenge with that kind of splitting up and thinking about things is then the things that you choose to focus on, as the previous session talked about this, Conway's law is if you split a team into two, they end up becoming equally weighted, even if they're not. And sometimes, you know, for us, certainly it was kind of everything. And this new part that we were building on the side, which was at the time was the Slack platform, our kind of integration with a lot of third party apps. But it really wasn't, it wasn't a 50-50 weighting. It should have been more like a 75-25, but that's just very hard to do organizationally. And the way you design your organization ends up, you know, stealing the, the Conway's law, the focus comes out of that. Anyway, that's not really the question you asked, but I feel like we should move. I, I think, I think there were some, some, some great stories there. Well, I want to bigger on something you said in there, which yeah. I think is fascinating. How we think about growth, but in practice, a lot of that growth means giving up some of the things that you were able to do early on, having less visibility as the company is growing and being comfortable delegating. And if anyone uh, here is in a leadership role now and you are an IC, I am sure you felt the pain of learning to delegate. And if you didn't, lucky you, because I know I felt it. 
So I want to ask you perhaps if you have any tips on how we can get more comfortable with that delegation. I think sometimes you know it's the right thing to do, but it can still feel a little bit difficult because it's something you've owned and now you kind of have to take this thing you've worked on and trust it in somebody else's hands. Yes. And I think it's even more than that. It's that a lot of people who found companies have worked as small companies are at a kind of an IC leader combo is your whole career identity has been based around being a good individual contributor and understanding how, you know, whether you're super hands-on with code or whether you're just like a detailed architect, you understand how everything fits together. If that's how you've had success in your career up till then, it's really hard to detach your kind of sense of accomplishment and self-worth from the activity of doing that thing. And if you are senior, more mature in your career than some of the other people you're working with, you also probably think you're pretty good at what you do. Like, I was a pretty good engineer. I'm not like an amazing engineer or anything, but I was pretty good at it. I was very productive. Nobody understood our code base better than me because I started that out and I understand how it all fits together. So that can be really difficult to step away from that. But if you think about the natural end state, if you have hundreds or thousands of people in your engineering organization, it would be a terrible use of your time to be writing code. And the reason for that is like, however good you are, you're never going to be as productive as you could be being a multiplier over other people. And I mean that in a few different ways. There's the, there's the really obvious way that however fast you type on a keyboard, a hundred people can type faster combined than you can, right? They can just fingers to keyboard faster. You will always have a diminishing impact as an individual, as every individual does in a growing organization. That's the really obvious version of it. But I think the more obvious version, the less obvious, but more important version of it is if you can spend your time accelerating everybody else around you, then you're going to have a much bigger outcome. And as the number of people gets larger, the percentage acceleration that you need to do to make that a much better overall outcome kind of gets smaller and smaller. Like if you can boost 100 people, compounding interest is huge, right? Like if you get 1% better day after day, you're like, what is that, 5x over the course of a year? If you get 1% worse day over day, it's going to be a disaster pretty quick. Like those small kind of levers add up over time. This isn't quite the same thing, but there's a good article from Peter Siebel when he was at Twitter called Thousand Flowers Bloom and then killed 999 of them. And it's about the engineering effectiveness org, which is developer productivity, has a lot of different names. And it's trying to come up with a mathematical basis for how much you should put into developer productivity in an engineering organization. And when you look at what are questionably some of the world's most effective engineering organizations at scale and market might disagree with that today. Places like Facebook, Google, Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft, the largest organizations that have had extreme value over a long period of time. They have had at least 10% of all of their resources go into just making other engineers go faster. And I mean that purely in like a tools developer experience, build chain, mono repo supporting tool, building their own source control, whatever it is at crazy scale. If you're in the kind of growing organization where you have so much to do, so many things that you need to deliver on, so many priorities, and it's like there is just value everywhere to reap, right? Like every single line of code or hour of engineering time that you put in is going to like advance your company forward. It can be really hard to not put every resource that you have as an organization into feathering those goals directly. And it feels like anything else is a waste. Like any minute that you spend having a meeting that isn't exactly about delivering those things is a moment wasted. But figuring out what is the right time to step back and put a portion of that investment into accelerating your organization one month, six months, and 12 months from now is a difficult transition to make mentally, I think. And I would say for if you know you're going to be growing, because there's a, there are different kinds of companies, right? If you work at a 100-person company that's likely to be a 100-person company three years from now, you make very different investment decisions. 
if you're in that early but still hyper growth stage where you can see that or you can hope that you're going to be 10xing or more in terms of the, the number of people who work on it because you have that kind of business trajectory, then making that investment is really important. And I said, when I talk about those other engineering orgs that have, say, a 10% investment in developer effectiveness, that's the purely really easy to measure thing that you're doing with engineering headcount. Then there's the everything else in your organization that is stuff that slows people down, gets in their way, or on the other hand, could accelerate them. And that's kind of general rigor around organizational excellence and operational excellence and the things you can automate the things you can make a better experience, the friction you can remove. Now, there is definitely way too far that you can go on the other side, like kind of architecture astronauting of planning out everything way too much from the beginning. We're much more familiar with this in terms of engineering things where you, when you look at most of the large-scale engineering organizations that have had huge success, they didn't build all of that crazy architecture and tooling and infrastructure support from the beginning. They kind of, you know, built it on a wobbly house of cards and then went and built that stuff later and understood when the investment was right to be made. I think that's the same with any kind of organizational process is as an organization grows, you want most of your processes, the way you work to be kind of just a bit too late. And when you bring them in, when it starts to get painful and then it's like a big relief that you have them. When you build stuff too far ahead of time, you end up building the wrong things. You put in process where it isn't needed, that can slow you down a lot. So it's kind of interesting because there's a bunch of engineers. We, you say developer tools and developer effectiveness, and we know what you're talking about. There isn't this catch of a word, I think, for the engineering management side of things. So I'm curious, what is the leadership version of developer tools where you as a leader, having other leaders reporting to you, how do you look out for making them affordable to players down the line? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the reasons why it's hard, it's not like computer science is questionably a science, right? It's not like real engineering. It's not like engineers who make bridges and if they fall down, people die. It's like, oh, make software and then people can't order a taxi or whatever. So it's a different level of engineering. And then the level of kind of management science is is even rougher. And I think the level of rigor around it, and I think one of the challenges there when you talk about a growing organization is that's, it's really hard to reproduce and you can't A-B test management decisions. In the previous session on, on reorgs, this is really interesting, by the way, that's why I keep referring back to it, was you can't A-B test organizational because or in a large enough organization, you can try and do things like that. I've never seen those kind of experiments kind of bear fruit. But especially in a growing organization where things are changing so rapidly, it's really hard to, every organization is different. Every person is different. The, like, the technology and architecture choices make a lot of impact on how you manage people because it's how, how, what are the human dependencies between people? There are so many variables here that I think it's hard to distill it to. This is exactly how you should be an engineering leader. That said, I think there is, I, I don't know if this is, I've been in, I've been a software engineer for all of my career. So I don't know if other industries have it a lot better, but in general, the kind of the path and the pipeline from I'm an IC engineer to I'm a first time engine, like line level engineering manager has roughly zero support and zero training. And then we expect people to really completely change what it is they do. It's not like engineering management is like a 10% different from being a, like a staff engineer. It is a completely different skill set and you do a completely different set of things. So I think the, the best thing that you, can, uh, that you can hand engineering managers, especially fresh managers who are working for you, is your time. I think we definitely as an industry, ended up skewing really far on the you should spend half of your time with, in one-on-ones with your team. Like most IC engineers hopefully don't require a full hour every week of your time just for support. But I think engineering managers, especially earlier in their career, really do. So that's a really easy thing to do. 
or a relatively easy thing to do is spend a lot of time. I think the other one is peer support from other companies. One of the biggest, one of the biggest advantages of being in the San Francisco Bay Area is that we're surrounded by people who are doing similar things, have gone through similar stages just before us, or maybe much earlier in their career, are doing it now, are slightly behind us. And the peer network is really important in that. There's obviously many parallels between how you manage today as an engineering manager and how you might have 20 years ago. But a lot of things were in a very changing, changing industry and talking to immediate peers is hugely important. Yeah, some things stay constant, but certainly, uh, you know, the people we have in engineering are changing too, right? It's a much more diverse crowd, thankfully, which means that how we lead those people should evolve as, as well. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I have a couple more questions, maybe one or two, and I'm calling this out so that people can be thinking about the Q&A portion afterwards. So I like physics. I'm not good at it, but I like it. And so when we talk about force multipliers, a force is really a vector. It has a direction. And I was thinking about this the other day. I think the obvious way to be a force multiplier is I am thinking about something good and I can set off 100 people to kind of help with this thing. And now we're moving 100 times faster in the good direction. The other version of that is I am maybe perceiving something that can be bad for the company, for the team, and I can be a force multiplier by jumping in quickly, noticing quickly, and avoiding a stressful or a difficult situation. Do you have any examples where you were kind of the jumping in before the problem became a problem? Yeah, I think that makes me think of a couple of different things. One is that the, you said, you know, force multiplier, if you think of it as just acting on a single thing, then it makes a lot of sense. You're just adding acceleration, torture metaphor. But most organizations, as you get more and more people, People are not pointed in the same direction. And it doesn't mean like people are completely at odds with what you're trying to do as an organization. But as you get more and more people, it is impossible to align people at scale, like perfectly. And I think in some ways, the most important thing that will separate organizations that are successful over the next decade from those that aren't are going to be the extent to which they can quickly align organizations and keep them aligned through periods of change. And that is, especially as a startup, as market conditions change, as competitors change, as technology changes, the ability to respond to those changes is not just the seeing the change come and understand what you need to do as an organization. That could be product changes, strategy changes, organizational changes, but the ability to align the organization around that, make them understand where we're going, why, get buy-in to it. And that aligning people as much as making them go faster makes the whole organization go faster. If you have a whole bunch of people pulling in different directions, then you end up going nowhere. And that's not usually the case. It's not that extreme. But it's if you can point more people in the same direction, make them understand why you're doing something and where you're going, then you can get there a lot faster. I think the other side of that is as organizations grow, your timeline and your horizon should get further out as a leader. And it should always be further out than the team under you. And that should time horizon should contract as you go down an organization. But you always need to be thinking out just far enough. And that gets further and further. And like when you're a very early stage startup, that might be next week or next month. As you get larger, that's going to be months to years, quarters to years. I think one of the traps that it's very easy to fall into, especially as organizations grow, is that as a leader, you will be busy. You will have a lot of things that you can do and things that take up your time. There will be, and 
a near infinite number of things you can do, and it'll always be more than the time that you have. And you should put a sensible amount of time into what you're doing at work and figure out that work-life balance so it can be sustainable. That said, early stage startups, especially if you're in your career, are a great time to work a lot of hours because you won't be able to do that when you're older. And if you're passionate about something, certainly work more than 40 hours a week if you want to. But uh, what every leader needs to do is recognize when the things that you're spending your time on aren't aligned with what's really important or what's the most value that you can get out of your time. I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of having a very full calendar, feeling very busy, feeling like there's so many things to do and the things that you don't move the needle in any way. So I think one of the most important activities you can do as a leader is to look retroactively or proactively, look at your calendar, break up the time on it and say, this is how much I'm spending on this activity. This is how much I'm spending on this activity. This is how much I'm spending on this activity. And seeing if that aligns with what you think matters. What you think matters might be based on the goals of the company, the big challenges coming up. I spend quite a lot of time in my organization talking to different senior engineers all over the organization and asking, what do you think the biggest risk is to us over the next six months or over the next year? Sometimes it's technology, sometimes it's competition, sometimes it's organizational risk, concentration of knowledge or talent. And they're not always going to be right because everybody, you know, if you have a thousand employees, you'll have a thousand different opinions on what the biggest threats are. Condense that down, decide what you agree with. And then are you spending time on either like maximizing upside or minimizing downside, depending on what you think the biggest threats or the biggest opportunities are? Are you spending your time there? Because you like naturally you won't be unless you look at it. Make sure you're looking at a little bit further and understanding what's the biggest lever on your time. There might be things that I think one of the big challenges is there is that there'll be things that feel really satisfying to you, depending on how you grew in your career and what you derive kind of like short term value and reward from like, oh, I solved this like tricky HR issue down in my org on some team like they're having a real problem. I really helped this first time manager. And that feels really rewarding. But is it going to need, move the needle for my organization? Alternatively, that could be the thing that really would. It's the thing that's blocking it. You really like solve engineering challenges, but the thing that's going to be the most of a lever is how can I get this part of my organization healthy? And that's a management issue, not a technology issue. So I think making sure you understand what you think are the most important things to move the needle for your organization. And then are you spending time doing that? I think you're calling for a retrospective that people should do with their own time, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Right? And I don't do a good job of this, by the way. I look <laughs> on my calendar. I'm like, what the fuck have I been doing? I felt really busy, but it hasn't made a big difference. Um, and some of that can be block out some time and spend time writing documents like the where do we want to be in three years? What are the big technology challenges facing us? And then try and spend your time around that. It's really difficult. It's a constant process. Yeah, I would say the number one thing I find is I should have blocked off time for thinking because it's hard to put thinking on your calendar. But I think if you look at market analysis, they call us knowledge workers. Right? So I have to remind myself that it is okay to have an hour that is not booked with some hands-on activity, but it really we, is that We are time. knowledge workers, not Zoom meeting attendees as much as it feels that way. There you go. Well, I'm sure glad that we're in person today. So no Zoom here. I pass here and let's take some questions for the audience. Speaking about multiplier and time management. Do you still code? I have not coded professionally in my job at Slack for quite a few years. And the reason for that being that I can probably still write code. I definitely can because I code in my spare time. I like have a lot of like many other people. I'm sure I have hundreds of half-finished projects. There's a one of the first kind of social channels in our Slack at Slack was called Games We Won't Finish to talk about our unfinished gaming projects. But I think the 
time spent coding is so little of what it takes to ship and support production code. It's the putting it out, it's supporting it, it's being on call for it. That is a poor use of time for engineering leaders in an organization past a certain scale. Now, for small teams, small companies, that might absolutely make sense. And that's the biggest thing you can do to impact your organization. But I held on to that for probably too long at Slack because I just really liked doing it. And then I was like, okay, I'll just work on developer tools and I'll deploy process because at least that doesn't touch customer stuff. It's like, ah, now I'm on call for that. And I actually have to meet with a customer, but really I need to fix this issue. So I'm unblocking the unblocking the pipeline. And that can be, just be really difficult because I really identified with that as what I did, what I was successful at and what brought me joy and like self-validation. And it was hard to transfer that to organizational success, feeling as rewarding, but was a really important step in the growth of the organization. Hi, both of you. Uh, this is such a great topic and thank you for all the insights. Uh, before we become a force multiplier, how do you identify you're not a force multiplier? Great question. How do you identify that you're not a force multiplier? And if I may add, as you're going through your career, how do you identify opportunities to be a force multiplier? It is a great question. I'm not sure I'm going to have a great answer. So I think there's multiple versions of not, right? There's the, am I dragging people down around me? I think that's harder to self-identify. I think it's easy to, when you look at the old stereotype of software engineers, it's somebody who like goes into their basement, and codes on something for weeks and then comes out with this like perfect pearl of software at the end. And that's how software is made. Software hasn't been made that way at scale ever. And it hasn't been made that way kind of in general for a very long time outside of like some weird open source project. So software is super collaborative. So I think if you're going to be successful as a software engineer, you have to be helping the team around you. I think culture around that has changed quite a lot. You know, the idea of most, a lot of organizations do code review and, you know, follow like the pull request model. And I think that has really changed from and, we, and generally, we've lost a little bit of that hagiography of like individual contributor who like just writes a ton of code and is super useful for an organization. That doesn't happen as much anymore. And that used to kind of be much more of the default. I think it's much easier to see in others than it is to see in yourself as to whether that person is lifting a team around them and helping other people around them to move faster, be better. And that doesn't necessarily mean like you're an amazing engineer and you can criticize everybody in the code review process. That doesn't necessarily mean you're really being a multiplier on the organization. It's similar to the, how do you measure the productivity of knowledge workers? We're not making widgets in a factory. It's not how many widgets we output per hour. It's certainly not like lines of code or bug escape rate or anything like that. That's all, I'm sure we all know about measuring those things. But one of the best ways that we found, a lot of organizations have found to measure knowledge worker productivity is engagement. And that is, it's hard to be really engaged in the work that you do that means like both happy about yourself and happy about the company and your role if you're not being productive. And that's much easier to measure on kind of like a team by team basis than it is on an individual basis. But in general, contribution on a team is best measured by the opinions of all of the people on that team put together. It's not a great answer. I think it's hard. It's hard to know as an individual. It's much harder, much easier for other people to know that. In an, getting an organization where peer feedback is honest can also be difficult because of the kind of the downsides of giving negative feedback about your peers. So I don't know, engineering management's hard. That's why you're all here. But I think there was something in your answer earlier that gets to this question as well, which is because it can be hard to self-identify, if you have a good set of questions where you're going out and proactively asking people, like when you said, hey, I'm talking to people and asking what is the biggest risk that you see for the company in the next six months, you're essentially inviting people to tell you perhaps what you should be spending time on because you might not act on every single answer. 
But you do see the patterns, right? I think that's absolutely true. Although people mostly aren't going to tell you, I think your lack of leadership is the single biggest risk to the organization. <laughs> right? That's probably hard. So it's going to be much more nudging you in their direction. That's fair. That's fair. Although that feedback does often kind of come disguised as, I don't think everybody understands the vision. I mean, I do, but I'm not ever sure everybody else understands the vision. Or it's not clear what that team's working on. Those are useful signals of not everybody is aligned around where you're going. And sometimes it's difficult to interpret those signals sometimes because that it might just be, I do understand where we're going, but I don't agree with it. And that's not necessarily the same as it's wrong and you're bad. So you mentioned engagement as measuring product productivity. That's really super interesting. I'm trying to put myself in the situation of maybe saying, hey, we should have 10% of the org work on developer productivity. The natural question would be, right, how do we measure the success of that? If I say engagement, I might get an answer from other people in the org. Well, what about like story points and how much we're accomplishing? How have you kind of addressed so that? Yeah. Measuring stuff like that is really hard because you don't A-B test it, right? It's not like you develop a set of tools around release management and only half the org uses them and you see how badly they operate. So if you ask people in an engineering organization what the biggest things holding them back are, what the things that are most frustrating about what they do day to day, you will always get a list of things, right? Like if you ask for a list of top five bad things, there's always going to be five things in it. So don't feel too bad about it. There has to be things in that list. But I think it's really important to quantify feedback like that in terms of habitable planets. Does people know that essay, the Babe Ruth one, it's by Ken Norton, I think really good article. But basically, if you write down the list of the planets in the solar system by how habitable they are, and it goes like Earth, Mars, Mercury, and then they seem equally weighted, but like this is the most important and the second most important. Turns out it's not. This one is much more habitable and this is the only one you should spend time on. And problems in your organization are often like that. It's like, I can come up with three things, but really number one is, is really where the problem is. I think one of the interesting exercises you can do around this, around kind of anything, is if you gather a list of things in a team that you think people should spend time on, and then you say, I'll give you 100 imaginary to spend on these things. Like, do they peanut butter them? Or is it like, I will spend $98 on this thing, $1 on this, and $1 on that. Or in fact, I will give you 100 extra dollars of my money so I can spend $200 on fixing the tests. That's a useful and important exercise to understand. There will always be things which are the, the worst thing about the developer experience, about the, and it, you're not really asking about the developer experience. You're asking what's stopping us from going faster, what's stopping us from achieving more. And the best outcome from that is there's a list of things which are roughly equally weighted because that means nothing is particularly a disaster. But when you can identify the thing that is a disaster or the couple of things, then it's time to invest in those. And for us at many times, that was something around the developer productivity. It was the thing that is stopping us from moving faster in the iOS code base is compilation times are so long and the tests don't tell us if things broke. So it just takes so long to ship any particular feature. It's like, okay, that is an area of really important investment. And now after two year big re-architecture, the problem on iOS, these two features are too tightly intertwined and the build takes a little bit too long and not enough people are enrolled in our beta program. And it's like, but those are fairly equally spread. People feel productive and there's not one thing that, that everybody on the team would say, well, this is the thing that's broken. And just one thing I wanted to add, you talked earlier about kind of retrospecting on how a leader spends their own time. I think similarly, we're fairly good at retrospecting on things that we built or chose to do or chose to prioritize. One thing I would suggest is do a retrospect on the things you chose not to do. Because I think over time I have found it makes it a little bit easier to make the hard calls where it, it feels like, oh man, I've, it feels really bad not to be doing this thing. But you can look back in three months and be like, yeah, you know, we still need to do this thing, but it's actually okay that we didn't do it. And it truly wasn't the most important. 
or it turns out it was really important and you actually learn a lesson for next time. So I think retrospecting on time, thinking through, trying to evaluate, albeit being difficult on the things you did, you chose to do, but also going back and thinking about the things you chose not to do can be very valuable. I'm just curious to see if you have experience in our world, the tech world is great. You work with a billion people, a lot of smart people, and most of them are really easy to work with, but there are a few that have very much more bigger ego and they think they're the 10X engineers. And I, I do find they're more a multiplier killer. And let's just see your experience, how you handle it, because they're so brilliant, right? So it's hard to... Yeah, I think so interesting. I think this is, there was a lot more tolerated in general in the industry a decade ago or 20 years ago. And I think there's the, when I do hate the term 10X engineer in a few different ways, but I think it can be, it can certainly be true in a couple of different ways. And I see some very, like the idea that there's somebody in your organization who has 10 times the impact of somebody else, 100% true in any large organization, because there's just going to be a big spread of how impactful people are. But when I look across, say our organization, I'd say there's two kind of core archetypes of people who are really impactful at that level. And that's people who are really, really individually productive, but motivate people around them to be as productive. And then there are the people who aren't necessarily like individually super productive, but are lifting enough other people around them enough that they have much more of an impact than anybody else. Now, you do get the other kind, which is like very individually productive, but are a much more burden or a net drain on people around them such that they come out to being like, a 0.2 engineer or a minus 5x engineer. And some organizations tolerate that. I'd say more and more engineering organizations just don't tolerate it. And it's having a culture of like, no, we're very clear in our engineering career path document that describes expectations at different levels that as you move up that ladder, and like it's not a ladder, it's a path, but as you get to a higher level, the expectations around collaboration and not just collaboration, but accelerating those around you mentoring those around you and lifting those around you is a hard expectation of the role. And that gives us a basis to say, you're not actually performing at this level and this, you have to fix this or you're not going to be, you're not going to be part of this engineering organization. And I think we've just been, this wasn't, certainly wasn't the case for the whole of my career, but for the last decade at Slack, no brilliant jerks. That's like one of our rules. And I think, as you said, we work with a lot of really smart people in tech. People take on a new technology, learn new things, solve difficult problems. And I think it's okay to ask people to solve non-technical problems to make themselves better engineers, right? You can be super brilliant and you can also not be an asshole, right? It is definitely possible. And some of the engineers I work with that I love the most, people love working with them. Sometimes because they're just brilliant engineers and they, but they also want other people to get brilliant around them. This kind of ties into one of a philosophy I've had, had for a while is that Slack is about a decade old. We've been going at it for almost a decade and we have some people who have worked there that entire time. Some people have been here a week, but Slack isn't a life sentence. Nobody is going to work there for the rest of their lives. And we don't expect them to. We expect them to go on and do other things. And in the fullness of time, the measure of success as an engineering organization is going to be, yes, business success. But did the people who joined Slack spent time there, did it accelerate their careers? And did they go on to do other great things? Like the whole PayPal mafia thing is real, right? Like they found the people who came out of PayPal in that era some of them are definitely objectionable for a bunch of reasons, but they've had hugely successful careers and gone on to found really interesting and sometimes really impactful companies. And I think a culture that accelerates people coming out of it is a thing to be proud of in the long term, because I don't expect 
most people working at Slack today to be at Slack 20 years from now. But I'd love it if they went and started their own organizations, great engineering leaders elsewhere, and are lifting up and building a much larger community around them. And I think that, for me, will be the long-term measure of success for us as an organization is, is there a Slack mafia? That, not that's killing people or anything, or organized crime, but like a group of Slack people, you know, then go on to have great careers. And I know there's a bunch of current and ex-Slack engineering managers in the audience here and at the conference today. And that's great to see people spent time there and then gone on to, to do bigger and better things. And that's just really rewarding to see in the long term. It's the ultimate force multiplication, not just within the organization, but within the industry, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we are so lucky at this time to work in an industry that has both like such big financial rewards for people, but also has so much of an influence on society. We have um, this massively outsized lever on how the world works. That is one of the reasons why it's so important to have, have diverse teams and uh, to create opportunity for people because we have so much power over, it might just be over how you, people file their expenses in the workplace, sure, but it could also be about how people connect, how people communicate and how the whole experience of people's lives. And so there has never been a, an industry that you could get into where you can have more of a personal impact on people's lives, which is, it's, it's so good that it happens to align with my hobby and pays really well. So, what a thing to be thankful for. Cal, thank you so much. A great note to leave on. I often think about this. We do have opportunity to solve interesting problems, to grow people. Opportunity to have some real impact in society. Take that one seriously, because if you don't think about it, it gets tricky. We'll pause here. Thank you so much for attending. Thank you, Cal. Right. Thanks so much, everybody. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.